0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR daily brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support.
2: Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rockoff. I'm coming to you from somewhere not too far outside New York City. And we are joined today by a great group to talk about what's currently going on in Ukraine and Russia, including Angela Stent of Georgetown University. How are you doing today, Angela?
0: Well, thank you, David. Good to be on your show.
2: Glad to have you back. And... uh, David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you doing today, David? Very good. Glad to be here. And um, we have also with us Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Wrote kind of unsettling piece today on, you know, upcoming civil war in the United States. How are you doing today, Ed? Uh, Surprisingly well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, despite all all of that. I'll start with this, and I'll start with you, Angela. Uh, You know, over the weekend... President Zelensky actually left Kiev, went to Kharkiv, removed a local official, but also uh, did some touring. And, you know, I had a sense that one of the reasons, you know, he left Kiev and did this high profile visit was that we are moving into a second phase in this war. Later this week, we'll pass 100 days. And during the first Several weeks and even the first couple months of this war, the focus of Zelensky's leadership of Ukraine and the world has been isn't, you know, it's been on the miracle of holding off Russia. And as we enter into the next period of this war, the focus is a long war. And how do you sustain support for a long war? How do you sustain domestic support? How do you sustain the international community that is supporting you? And in this longer war, because you know sanctions are heavy and, and growing stronger, we, we had an agreement by the EU yesterday to stop buying Russian oil that came via pipeline except to Hungary, but still two-thirds of the oil supply that Europe was getting from Russia. A long war puts pressure not just... On the combatants, but on countries that are imposing those sanctions, and that might work to Putin's advantage. What do you think about that, Angela? What do you you think about Putin's attitude towards a long war?
0: Well, Putin has certainly dug in for a long war. We see that he has no intention of sitting down to negotiate with Zelensky if Zelensky wanted to do so. And Putin is looking out and he's seeing some cracks in Western unity, I mean, the EU did get this agreement, but it will in the end only cover ninety percent of Russian oil to Europe and not hundred percent and seventy five percent for a short while anyway. He sees countries like Italy. I mean, Mario Draghi just presented a peace proposal which the Russians threw out, which would of course involve territorial concessions from the Italians. He sees, you know, Chancellor Schultz, this famous Si vendor, this this change really hasn't completely happened. The rhetoric is good, but the chancellor is very cautious. Macron himself, I mean, both of them phoned Putin the other day and again, tried to offer a negotiation. So I think Putin's looking out and calculating that this Western unity maybe won't last that long. And when winter appears again, again, questions about gasoline prices, oil supplies, and then inflation, everything that we in the West are suffering, but the Europeans more than the US, will maybe cause people to to question or to try and put more pressure on the Ukrainians to make concessions. So Putin is in this for the long haul, and I think he will, and then plus, of course, outside of the Western coalition, we have India, China, and much of the rest of the world, the whole of the global south, of course, not condemning Russia, not sanctioning Russia, and willing to buy arms, oil, and whatever from Russia. So I think that's probably his calculation going forward. And you do hear in what Zelensky and his close officials are saying, greater maybe realism or less of an upbeat tone than you heard a little while ago, and an almost desperate plea for Western unity. So the tide hasn't turned yet, but we do see the Russians making more gains in the Donbass than they were a week or two ago.
2: So David, picking up on that, with a, an eye towards this issue of Western unity, we're certainly getting a mixed picture. As Angela points out, the Germans and the French continue to engage with the Russians, which is not something that the Ukrainians are very happy about. We've got folks like, you know, Henry Kissinger saying, let's make concessions. He's he's not alone in that. You have people on both the left and the right in the, in the United States saying, you know, let's try to Consolidate whatever gains Ukraine has made and bring this to an end. You still have a lot of apparent cracks in the in the EU. You've got Hungary, of course, not going along with this uh, set of sanctions. You've got Turkey continuing to say they're opposed to Sweden and Finland joining NATO, and now saying that the only reason, the only way they'll get past this is if Sweden and Finland change their laws to. Outlaw Kurdish groups to which the Turks oppose, and so on. And and you know, I mean, you've got Lavrov planning a trip to Serbia, a country which has been with Hungary, sort of an outlier in Europe. You spent a lot of time in Europe recently. What's your what's what's your sense of how this European alliance holds up over a period such as that described by Angela?
3: So it's it's broader than just Europe, but Europe obviously is the focus of it. So, first of all, there's no surprise here. The first hundred days were occupied by the shock of the Russian invasion, or at least shock among those who had predicted it wasn't going to happen. The horror of the abuses in places like Bukha, but not only there. The discovery that the Russians weren't 10 feet tall in their retreat from Kyiv and, and Western uh, Ukraine. So now we've settled into sort of the grinding second part of the war, right? The part where the Russians have reduced their goals, some to a land bridge to Crimea and securing the Dunbass. And after a time period, national interests reassert themselves. And you just ran through the list. The Turks have become the, the hold up artists of this entire thing, right? Which is every time there's a big ask from the West, they pull out their shopping list of things that they would like. The Europeans, who enthusiastically embraced the idea of sanctions more enthusiastically than we thought they would, are now carving themselves exemptions for pipelines full of gas and, in some cases, oil. Even with the additional stuff, you're about to go see a new fight over whether or not you can seize the central bank assets of the Russians, or at least those that are located in Europe and the United States, and give that to Ukraine for reconstruction. Even there, there's divided opinion inside the the Biden administration because some people do not want to seize assets and create a um, a precedent that the United States may not be the safest place in which you park your central bank assets and dollars. And they're concerned about that. So you're about to see a return to the mean. Now, does that mean that the, all the pressure is going to go off of the Russians? Absolutely not, because these are big sanctions. And I think The export controls in particular are going to be what hurts them the most on technology, on semiconductors and so forth. Shouldn't be a huge surprise. And then, of course, you've got that part of the world, largely in Asia, where people have never really committed fully other than South Korea and Japan. And uh, if you're going to make this work, you're going to have to win over a good number of them as well.
2: So, Ed, as David points out, I didn't mention whole world in terms of this, but in Asia, in the Middle East, people have been dragging their feet. The Israelis just blocked the sale of um, a certain kind of anti-tank weapon that they own some of the technology within um, or had the ability to block the sale. We're you know, seeing some of those countries that you know one would have hoped would come along now sort of saying, well, this is going to go a certain kind of a way the position we've adopted is the right position. And so some of the early euphoria with regarding this war and how well Ukraine has done seems to be fading. How dangerous do you think that is for Ukraine?
4: Potentially relatively dangerous. I mean, the Ukraine fatigue, for want of a sort of better term, has become quite tangible in the last two, three weeks within the West. You know, not, not just in terms of the European divisions we've been discussing. And as Angela pointed out, this German vendor not being quite what it was cracked up to be, at least not yet.
2: Just in case you haven't seen it, in the course of the past several minutes, the Germans, it has been announced that the Germans have agreed to provide certain kinds of vehicles to the Greeks so the Greeks could free up Soviet-era tanks to give to Ukrainians.
4: Okay. Uh, Well, I I wasn't aware of that. It's still a little bit of a puzzle to me. And I know this wasn't a German question you asked, but it is a little bit of a puzzle to me that Germany can quite happily and uncontroversially export arms to authoritarian regimes on quite some scale around the world, but has to do these really weird, elaborate roundabout ways to get heavy weaponry into Ukraine. I think that point still stands. In fact, in a way, this Greek Greek scheme sounds like it validates it. But the larger sort of global public opinion, what well, we've had some sort of funny votes. I mean, Singapore is normally very even-handed between China and the United States because it's a small country. It's by virtue of its geography, a paranoid one. has been absolutely unequivocal in siding with the West on this because it is a small country. It does not like to see the precedent of big ones invading small ones and, and the breaking of international law. India has, of course, got its own chessboard in its head, and it doesn't want to see Russia and China become as close as teeth and lips and mountain and sea, as deep as a mountain, as high as a mountain, as deep as a sea, as the sort of close China relationships are often described. It wants to try and keep some distance between Russia and China by maintaining a friendship with russia and of course deeply discounted oil is is a big incentive as indeed is the more worrying from the west point of view russian s400s that india's commissioned to buy from russia it's not just the turks who want to buy s400s it's the indians so there are all kinds of local reasons for standing apart from 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 this that i don't think are going to wane i think if anything they're going to get stronger, as we see a degree of inevitable, uh, I mean, as David mentioned, reversion to mean going on here, which, you know, is, is that Ukraine fatigue. From what I understand is happening in Donbass, this isn't really a war of attrition. The report suggests this is this is a war of oblivion. This This is much, much more than attrition. And so... I think we're going to see, as Zelensky said the other day, worse to come. The worst is yet to come. And so I suspect we will be alerted and electrified again if we see that kind of buka, if we see the the Mariupol kind of situation recur, that's going to regalvanize the West. But I have to say at this point, the foot dragging by, by France, by Germany, and by Italy is a concern. And as inflation and food prices and so forth and energy prices inflation entrenches, it's going to remain a concern.
2: no doubt. and And you know, I think I could do a forty five minute long monologue on why this is going well for Ukraine or on why this is going well for Russia, just citing developments over the course of the past several days in either direction. Angela, you know, the Russians seem to be trying to take advantage of all of this. There has been some outreach to the Turks saying, hey, we can deal with some of these issues of shipments going out of the Black Sea if we just talk a little bit more. But having said that, just you know, flipping to the other side of the story, a long war is hard for Russia. It's hard because the sanctions will have teeth, as David noted, particularly on the export control side. It's it's hard because they're very tough on people very close to Putin. It's going to be a big drag on the economy, bigger drag than the uh, sort of illusory recovery of the ruble seems to indicate. One of the things that, you know, reports military analysts have coming out of the Donbass is that although the number of Russian tanks has destroyed, this may be because there are fewer Russian tanks to deploy and that Russia's ability to resupply is, is seriously in question here. And certainly on some level, Putin has some worries, right, with regard to a long war because it's gonna be very unpopular at home. And you know, as sort of the food crisis turns into a global phenomenon later in this year, and it's clearly going to be laid at the doorstep of Russia, despite whatever the absurdities the Russian foreign ministry produces to blame it elsewhere, pressure could increase. So, how do you, do you see vulnerabilities emerging for Putin that he's got to be very careful of over the remainder of this year?
0: Set? Certainly. So, the first one is manpower. They are having a problem getting enough soldiers to go and fight in Ukraine. They've now raised the age from where you can actually volunteer to or sign a contract from 40 to 60. The other day, I saw a a recruitment fair online in St. Petersburg. They've avoided going to the major cities until now because that's where you're going to have a more educated population.
2: Can you imagine an army that looks like Ed Luce and David (laughs) Sanger?
0: No comment. <laughs> no comment. Um, and and um, so they, you know, and they've so far been sending mainly ethnic minority soldiers there from really poor areas in Russia because, you know, they don't look like the Ukrainians and they wouldn't identify with them. They're running out of those very high casualty rates there. So manpower is a huge problem. Putin did not announce general mobilization on May 9th, which people thought he would, because he knows, as you alluded to, that this really would be unpopular. And once you get, again, more better educated, more sophisticated people maybe being drafted into the army who do have other ways of finding out what's really going on, then I think you will see more resistance. Having said that, the latest Levada, which is the only independent polling organization in Russia, they still show popularity for Putin quite high in the 80s and also support for the war. So we shouldn't delude ourselves if we believe those statistics. So I think getting enough people to fight is a problem. I think the problem of equipment, of tanks, again, because of the corruption in the Russian military, a lot of the money that should have gone to military equipment, to tanks and other weapons is lining people's pockets. And that's what they're experiencing now, the the after effects of that. And I think as time goes on, and as again, and David alluded to this, the impact of export controls are felt even more with semiconductors' components. They're already now having to use components from washing machines to go fix some of their military equipment. This is all going to place a much heavier burden. And you do hear rumors, you know, I don't know how much they can be believed, that there is more grumbling, obviously, among the business elites, which you also alluded to, who didn't want this war and who've been adversely impacted. And not just the very rich oligarchs with the $600 million yachts, but, but you know, business. other middle-class businessmen who can't travel now, who can't live the kind of global life that they led before. But what we really have to wait and see is it's the security services and the military. And if there was real opposition there, then I think Putin would be in serious trouble. But we, we hear rumors, but we have no facts about that. Uh, but I think the longer the war goes on, I think the more pressure Putin will feel. And when I watch some of these ludicrous evening talk shows, I mean, the explanations that the Russians are being given for what's going on get more fantastic all the time. I mean, it's a holy war um, that, you know, as you said, the, uh, the ports, the grain is blockaded because of the Ukrainians. And everything that we know the Russians have done is turned against us, the West, the collective West. And we're blamed for it. And you wonder how much of this stuff can Russians really believe? The problem is they've been brainwashed for so long that they probably believe more of it than they should. David, you know, continuing in this vein,
2: there are some places where the support for Ukraine is unwavering and continuing to grow. The new leadership of Europe, the smaller states of Europe, the Baltic states. I saw a thing the other day that said the Slovakia has provided five times the heavy weaponry to Ukraine that Germany has, So smaller states are doing a lot. UK has been leaning into this a little bit more. Clearly, we've seen that with uh, Scandinavia. We have a more sort of pro-US administration stance coming from someplace in Asia, notably, notably South Korea and the new president there. But the linchpin seems to be the US and how the US approaches the next phases of this. So far, for a big period, the U.S. was just writing big checks every week, sending more equipment every week. That seems to have slowed as other issues have come up, but also because very recently there was a very big package. But there was also a decision by the U.S. not to provide missiles that could reach deep into Russia. Now, I know that the U.S. had been considering that for a while as one of the things it might do if Russia escalated in nuclear escalation other WMD escalation, but do you see the U.S. support for Ukraine weakening, or do you see it staying the same and and thus providing Ukraine with what it's going to need to actually get better and better weaponry going forward over the next several months and possibly striking back and reversing some of the Russian gains in Donbass?
3: So this is the million-dollar question because we've got a couple of factors working. So the first, as you mentioned, is just Ukraine attention span, right? We see it in newspaper readership. I mean, we had millions of people coming to most big Ukraine stories three months ago we were settling down to something more like a big foreign policy event. You saw it with what happened once the awful school shootings happened in Texas, which Took over the front pages the way Ukraine had three months ago. And suddenly there was just a lot less in prominent places about the war, even though the war remains a very big story. But the third thing, and I think the one that we're getting at here now, is the question of at what point do you think you've hit your limits? So right now, the United States is providing a kind of weaponry to Ukraine that back in January or February, everybody was telling us we would never provide to Ukraine. And the rumor is the next thing to go is the multiple launch rocket systems which are used to suppress Russian fire. Coming off his helicopter the other day uh, on Sunday, President uh, Biden said we would not give weapons that could be shot into Russia. What he meant was That could hit large Russian cities. Obviously, when you share a border with Russia, something that can go 30 or 40 miles, which is what we have given them, can reach Russia and can certainly reach some of their stockpiles. So now the issue is how much do we play into the Putin game of saying if you give us something that threatens our own state, that's the triggering line in which we could use nuclear or other special weapons. And Biden's been pretty careful until now. The reason that he refused the no-fly zone, it's the reason that he would not let the MiG jets that were stored in Poland and elsewhere in uh, NATO countries be launched from there to go to Ukraine, where the Ukrainians could go use them. And we're going to learn, not by what the White House says, but what it does, where those limits are. And it's been a moving target.
2: Right. I want to continue with this discussion, because I think the case that we're making here is that at the moment, the fate of Ukraine is uh, really uh, resting on a razor's edge and things could go either way. And I want to talk to Ed about that and come back to all of you. Uh, We do that after the break. Uh, We typically take a break at this moment, say goodbye to the folks who are joining us from the general public. And say the, the remainder of the discussion is going to be available to members only. And if you want to have such as discussions available to you, all you have to do is become a member, which uh, I think will set you back roughly the cost of, you know, a cup of coffee. It's kind of less than, you know, the cost of parking in New York City for an hour for the whole year, which is to say uh, not very much. So please consider joining us, becoming a member, supporting what we're doing. and. Uh, We'll be back after this break.
3: Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR network Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts.